open God's word with me to Colossians 2 this morning, 2, and we'll begin reading in a few moments in verse 8, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter, 23. But before I read the text today, I want to read to you from John MacArthur's introductory statement to this particular passage. And he writes this, as you're turning there, just listen as I, as I read this quote. He writes, quote, Today, with advanced media capability, there is an onslaught of false teaching of unprecedented proportions. On every side, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ is either openly or implicitly denied. False philosophy has infiltrated the church in the guise of psychology, which is all too often viewed as a necessary supplement to God's word. Many lean toward mysticism, claiming to receive visions and extra-biblical revelations. Others are legalists, equating holiness with observing a list of cultural taboos. Still others urge the practice of asceticism, arguing that poverty or physical deprivation is the path to godliness. Pastors, elders, and other church leaders who are responsible to warn the church against false teaching are often the very ones proclaiming those errors. The churches in the Lycus Valley also faced the danger of spiritual intimidation. False teachers were telling them that Jesus Christ was not sufficient, that they needed something more, end quote. Do we need anything more than Christ Jesus? No. And I pray the Lord will protect us from anyone who comes along saying that there is more to this Christian life than Christ and him crucified. There is nothing more than Jesus that the Christian needs for salvation and sanctification. So now look with me to see that in Colossians 2 as Paul makes his argument for that in Colossians 2, 8 to 23. And this is the part of the chapter that he's actually in one sense, encouraging the saints, at the same time he's rebuking the false teachers. It's important that we see this. It's important that we understand this. He, he refutes the false teachers, but at the same time he feeds the saints the truth about Jesus. I think that's a great example for us to, to follow. In 2.8 he, he writes this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. And put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, let me just stop for a second here. This is all about God's mighty work in saving sinners. There is no man exaltation here. There is no no point in here saying that it was up to you to do these things. It's all about what God has done for us in Christ. And that's Paul's point. He's talking about the sufficiency of the work of Christ to redeem and sanctify God's people. He says, if you know all this, then you need to understand the rest of this. In verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you or defraud you of the prize, insisting on False humility, asceticism, and worship of angels. Insisting, he says. Going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, his fleshly mind. And not holding 
fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching. These, he says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism or false humility and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul is, is refuting what the false teachers at Colossae had brought in, saying if you follow these regulations, these traditions, and, and you live in this very uh, humble manner and you treat your body with severity, you, you starve your body through fasting or you abstain from drinking wine, then you will have experiences like ours. You will have angelic visitations and you'll have visions of heaven and therefore you will be a better Christian, a fuller Christian, a real Christian. And Paul's argument is that in reality this doesn't make you a better Christian. It actually is of no value whatsoever at stopping, stopping sin in the flesh or making you more Christ-like. It only has the appearance of wisdom. He actually says it's an elementary elementary uh, principle of the world that's being applied here. It's the world's view of trying to look holy rather than God's means of making you holy through Christ. Paul wants them to understand the balance here and to reject the false teachers, reject those who want to pass judgment on them, those who want to disqualify them because, one, they've been qualified in Christ and his work. They've been judged in Christ at the cross through his work. There is no disqualification for the truly redeemed sinner. We are secured in Christ. We are set free in Christ to serve God from the heart, no longer strictly from the outward appearance, but actually inwardly from the heart into the life where Christ is magnified. And so what he does as a good shepherd, Paul seeks to, to guard his sheep the sheep that God's called him to care for. And, and here's what he does. I'm going to give you an outline. You can write this down on your notes. It'll be helpful. It's a long outline, so you need to write it down, or you'll never follow me. But here's what Paul does in Colossians 2, 16 to 23. Paul guards the sheep by reminding his readers that, number one, number one, the shadow of legalism cannot supplement eternal salvation. Verses 16 and 17. The shadow of legalism cannot supplement eternal salvation. Number two, he reminds his readers that the experience of mysticism will not, will not strengthen biblical sanctification. Verses 18 and 19. The experience of mysticism will not strengthen biblical sanctification. And thirdly, he reminds his readers that the practice, the practice of asceticism does not sustain spiritual motivation. Verses 20 and 23 to 23. Let me read it again so you get it. He's reminding his readers that, number one, the shadow of legalism cannot supplement eternal salvation. He reminds them, secondly, that the experience of mysticism will not strengthen biblical sanctification. And thirdly, he reminds them that the practice of asceticism, the harsh treatment of the body, does not sustain spiritual motivation, motivation for sanctification, Christ's exaltation pursuit of ministry. It's not motivated by treating the body harshly. Actually, that's worldly. That's what he'll tell us. Let's begin in Colossians 2, 16 to 17, where I'll give you the first point. The Apostle Paul here boldly, 
I think boldly is the right way to say it, boldly reminds weak and weary saints that, number one, the shadow of legalism cannot supplement eternal salvation. Here's why. That salvation is complete in Christ. It needs no supplement, right? It is finished, Christ said upon the cross, paid in full. He paid the fullness of our debts himself in the flesh on the cross as our substitute. He lived our life righteously. He died our death as a substitute, compassionately, personally. We can't add to that. It needs no supplementation. In verses 16 and 17, Paul is boldly stating that you and I should let no one judge us by the shadow of legalism. Look at the text. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. This is a command by the Apostle Paul, who's commissioned by Jesus. The special sent messenger of Jesus gives you a command. So therefore, it's not Paul giving you the command. It's Jesus giving you the command. Don't let these guys pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Here's why. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, shadows are important, right? I mean, you know, if, if I'm in a room and I'm by myself and all of a sudden I see a shadow cast across the, the floor, I know somebody's there, right? That's a good thing to know. Somebody walked into the room. But I don't run over to the shadow and say, hi, how are you? It's good to have you here today, right? Now, I look to the substance, I turn because the shadow simply does this. It points me to the reality, right? The Old Testament regulations were to do that. They pointed us to the reality, the one who would come to fulfill them all, the one who would come that embodied them all, the Holy One. The law points to the holiness of God. Well, the Holy One came near to us in Christ. Now, Paul's doing something important here for the, the Colossian believers. He's describing the twisted thinking of the false teachers who had not only taken the Old Testament dietary and and Sabbath laws and and brought them in back into the church, but they actually superimposed their own human traditions on top of the Old Testament law of God, as as if God's law needed a little bit of propping up. Let's raise the standard a little higher than God. It's ridiculous. But that's what legalists do. They, they want to raise the standard, thinking that if we raise the standard and we, we can set this as an example, then we will be truly godly people. But in reality, the substance of Christ's righteousness, his life that's imputed to us, that's what sets us apart unto holiness. The truly regenerated sinner doesn't look at the law as a curse any longer. He, he sees the curse removed in Christ, and he sees the glory of God's holiness in the law, and he doesn't reject the law. He loves the law because it reminds him of his redeeming Savior who saved him from the curse of the law. The law could never save, though. It pointed out our failure to obey, to comply to a holy and righteous God's requirements that reflected his nature. The law works for a good in us to point us to Christ ultimately. But these men were saying the law needed to be abided by for you to be a better Christian and you need to take their human traditions on top of this. What they're doing is trying to convince the Colossians that strict observance to these regulations was absolutely necessary for salvation or at least it was the only way they could experience full salvation. That's what legalists do. They may not say that it's you know, necessary for you to be saved to keep all these rules, but you're not a real Christian unless you do it this way, unless you follow our regulations, our traditions. Listen, folks, Christ fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law for us. We can't add to that. He completed the work on our behalf. To try to add to that is to say that Jesus' work was insufficient. And that's what was happening here at Colossae. This was a sideways attack at the sufficiency of Christ's atonement. We can see here these, these 
false teachers. You can see it clearly as you read through the book of Colossians. They added their own requirements, their own food and drink regulations on top of these Old Testament dietary laws. I want you to understand something, though. The the Old Testament dietary laws, the festivals and the Sabbaths, they were given for a purpose, a good purpose. They were given to mark out the nation Israel as God's people. But the demand... The demand to cling to those Old Testament shadows revealed something about these false teachers at Colossae. These false teachers were denying, by their demand, they were denying the spiritual reality of what the Old Testament laws pointed to in Christ. In verses 16 and 17, he he makes it clear that we shouldn't be intimidated by those who live in these shadows those who are still trying to obtain some sort of salvation through their good works or their deeds. He says, you shouldn't be intimidated by those who still live in the dark. They're not in the light of Christ. Why are you listening to them? Now, Paul understood that the shadow wasn't needed any longer since the substance of Christ has arrived. His incarnation brought God's redeeming work to earth. The fulfillment of God's law came in Christ. But that doesn't mean that the Old Testament regulations have no purpose for us, that they're not important any longer. Paul's simply saying to say that you need to obey them to be saved is never what the Old Testament taught. It's not what the New Covenant teaches. You are saved by God's grace through the sacrifice of Christ, not your own sacrifices. But those Old Testament regulations served a good purpose, and they still serve a purpose for us today, both the moral And the ceremonial ones, they still serve a purpose for us today. They always point us to Jesus. They lead us like a tutor to the master. That's what Paul tells us in Galatians 3.19. Look there with me. Galatians 3.19. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, our tutor, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Then he goes on to say this, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ Jesus, you have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Not heirs according to obedience. We're saved by the works of Christ, not our own. And the moral and the ceremonial law used properly, they simply extol the holiness of God. They lift up the standard of who God is before a sinful world and say, look, you need a redeemer. You cannot achieve this standard of righteousness on your own. But God, who is rich in mercy, has provided one for you. He'd always promised to do that. Salvation in the Old Covenant as well as the New Covenant has always been by grace, through faith, in what God himself would provide for us, namely Christ Jesus. Therefore, go back to Colossians and think about this. If that's the case, if the Old Testament shadows were pointing to the reality of Christ, and Christ has came, Christ has fulfilled the the law for us, We are free, but not free to sin. We are free in Christ. We are free to pursue what God wants us to pursue. We're set free from slavery to sin. Though we fall short of our pursuit, 
We rest in Christ because he never fell short. He was our substitute. So in Paul's line of thinking, here's kind of what I wrote down as a thought process as he's dealing with these Colossian false teachers. All this being the case, in verses 16 and 17, then, then why, why do we need to still cling to the dietary laws when the true bread of life, the true bread of heaven, has set us apart? The dietary laws were intended to set us apart. But when the true bread of heaven came down, what did he do? He set God's people apart. He saved and sanctified us. John 6:32 tells us that. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, not what, it's he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Now, he makes a contrasting statement here. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now listen, folks. That is a description of being saved and set apart unto salvation eternally by Christ himself, because the Father has given you to him. And he died in particular for you. Um, The true bread sets us apart eternally. We don't need to go back and go through these dietary rules to be set apart unto God spiritually. We have been set apart eternally by what Christ did when he came to this earth to take our place and die our death and rise again victoriously for us. So Paul's thinking is why, why submit to these Old Testament regulations when the reality has come? Why cling to festivals like the Passover or the new moon sacrifices since Christ has been sacrificed for us? I mean, why are you going back to the shadow and the dark when the reality of Christ and him crucified has been given to you by God's grace? Why cling to Sabbath days and regulations when you're promised an eternal rest in Christ? Folks, we, we can be sometimes caught off guard by legalists who, who sound and, and appear to be very upright, very righteous looking, and they come up with new rules, new ideas, new rituals that we should do to make us stronger Christians. We need to be careful of those people who do that. There is no greater strength that binds us together than the blood of Christ, the resurrected love of Christ that's now poured out richly in us who are redeemed. We are bound to him eternally. Nothing we can do will separate that. Nothing we can do will add to that. He loves us as much as he ever will. We don't make him love us by our obedience. We don't supplement this salvation. Back in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, that's what Paul's reminding us of. He's reminding us not to be intimidated by legalists. Here's why. These guys are living in the shadows. You have been brought into the light by the king himself, delivered from the kingdom of darkness, brought into the domain of Christ. Now, I need to state something here at this point about legalists. We need to understand that there are two forms of legalism that we must be aware of and beware of. Okay, Two forms of legalism We must be aware of one form is eternally damnable. And the other form is at best personally prideful. There's a form of legalism that seeks to merit salvation by keeping God's regulations, God's law or any other religious practice or ritual. And you need to understand this is damnable. 
This is saying that you are saved by your works, not by the sufficient work of Christ. In other words, his work is insufficient. Galatians 3.10 describes this. Galatians 3.10 describes this damnable legalism, one that will curse you forever because you can't do it. You can't merit God's favor. We have a problem that's called indwelling sin. It's called total depravity. It's called a wicked heart. We are born sinners. And until God redeems us and grants us a new heart, that's what we stay. Therefore, we can't obey perfectly. Look what it says in 3.10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. That's some pretty strong language. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And then he says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Those who rely on obedience to the law, he says, are under a curse because no one is declared righteous, justified before God based on their obedience. If you don't do all the law, all the time, from the heart outwardly, you're under that curse. That means if you you neglect one part of any of God's law, you've broken it all. Now, who can meet that standard? Who can who can do that? Now, listen, Paul, Paul, but makes his own little sarcastic boast in some of his epistles. He says, you know, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, you know, circumcised the eighth day, blah, 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 blah. He goes on and on and on and on. But at the end of his 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 reference, he says, but I count all that as rubbish compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ and what he has done for me. He didn't count his works as his means of salvation. His works didn't add to his salvation. Matter of fact, Paul says, I work harder as an apostle than every other apostle. But it's not me, it's Christ working in me. He didn't believe that his apostolic authority brought him closer to God and added to his salvation. He knew that salvation from beginning to end was of God and for God's praise. And this kind of legalism that tries to merit salvation, according to this, is damnable. And this was being brought into that church. And sometimes it's being brought into our lives by people who seem like they have good intentions. But understand, if they believe in this, they're severed from Christ. They're cut off. They're separated. They're still living under the law, therefore not trusting that Christ completed it for them. Now, the other kind of legalism, and this is the one I think that we probably struggle with the most. Okay, all of us struggle with this one. It's not a a legalism that tries to merit salvation. It's a legalism that tries to sustain salvation or sustain God's blessings. And consequently, what it looks like is harsh, critical, judgmental actions. Those who try to sustain God's blessings tend to look down their nose at those who fall short of what their standards are. That's the kind of legalism we have to be careful of. The kind that's trying to sustain God's blessings and harshly judging others for not living up to our personal standards. That's pride. That was happening at Colossae as well as the the damnable type of legalism. But this is prideful. Luke 18 in Luke 18, Jesus exposes how prideful this is and how he hates it. In Luke 18, 9 to 14, speaking of Jesus, he says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's this sort of this kind of salvation, or this legalism rather, that tries to sustain God's blessing and turns around and harshly judges others. That's what he's dealing with here. He says, here's here's what happened. Two men, verse 10, went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, tax collectors were the scum of the earth. 
the worst part of this society, the most rejected of this society, the least righteous in this society outwardly. These guys were known for basically extortion, extorting their own people for Rome. He says these two guys, this really outwardly righteous man comes up and this other man who's obviously opposite of that. The Pharisee, in verse 11, standing by himself, prayed thus. And here is this sort of legalistic prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He puts him in a whole other category. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now notice, Jesus makes a point of saying this man was obviously vocal about this, publicly vocal about this, boasting in his standard of lifestyle compared to this tax collector. But in verse 13, he says, but the tax collector standing far off. In other words, he didn't feel worthy to come near. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, the sign of contrition, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the right heart. The other is prideful and possibly damnable. But this one, I tell you, he says, this man went down to his house justified, declared right, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen, the the externally legalistic man was not justified. He was not blessed by God for raising his standards so high. His standards led to a sinful, fleshly pride. That's the danger of legalism that comes into most churches. We begin to come to the point where we don't watch certain things, we don't drink certain things, we don't smoke certain things, and we begin to think that, okay, that's the standard that all of my brothers and sisters must live up to. And in reality, there's a certain pride that rises up in us when we think, I don't do all that stuff. Can't believe brother so-and-so does that stuff. That's dangerous. One, it takes our eyes off Christ. And two, it exalts ourself. Both are sin. I think Paul is striking a blow at both forms of legalism here in Colossians 2. I think he does that because they, they, they simply take our eyes off the sufficiency of Christ's work. Listen, Eternal salvation, we know this, we need to be reminded of this. Eternal salvation comes from Christ's perfection, not any kind of legalistic additions we bring to our salvation. We can't add to what Jesus has already completed. We can rest in it, though. God's Word tells us that we're not saved by our righteousness. We're saved by Christ's. We're saved by His perfect obedience, not ours. I think most of us know that. But practically, we can be tempted by legalism, just like anyone else. Tempted to try to add some good things, to to balance out our weak faith, raise the standard a little higher, to make us feel a little bit more spiritual because we've set our rules higher than our brother or our sister. And if we're not careful, we'll begin to think that that's securing our salvation. Since I have such a high view of holiness, I must be saved, and that guy must not be saved, or at least not as spiritual as me. So let's just ask ourselves this question. What really truly secures our salvation? Is it that we're resting in Christ's work? Or is it that we're trying to obtain or maintain salvation through our works? Church, we know Scripture teaches us that salvation is of God. God's salvation needs no shadowy supplementation. The substance of our salvation is based on Christ's perfection and his obedience, his work alone. And the substance of Jesus' obedience not only secures our salvation, as we read further in Colossians, we'll see that it also strengthens what legalism cannot strengthen. It strengthens progressive, Christ-exalting sanctification. It strengthens the church when we think about Christ's work. 
actually focusing upon the cross of Christ and what he accomplished in our behalf, on our behalf, causes us to turn further and faster from sin than setting up superficial standards. Thinking about the cross turns us from sin. It's there that we see what our sins cost Jesus. That makes us pursue sanctification. That strengthens that pursuit, and it keeps us from allowing anyone to pass judgment on us. Because we know on the cross we were judged. We were found guilty. And Christ took our penalty. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now go back with me to Colossians 2 as we look further. In verses 18 and 19. Here in 18 and 19, Paul not just, I guess you could say, uh, boldly speaks. He powerfully speaks. Paul powerfully rebukes false teachers and reminds the church that, number two, the experience of mysticism will not strengthen biblical sanctification. When I say biblical sanctification, here's what I'm trying to get at. God has given us a means of sanctification. His spirit dwelling in us, number one. And that spirit who illuminates his written word, number two. And I would say maybe on three, on the third point would be this. His church that is also set apart to serve and glorify Christ. That is spiritual sanctification. That is biblical sanctification at work. Spiritual sanctification isn't some mystical experience, some light that goes on at night and wakes you up and gives you a vision and tells you how you can be closer to God through these different things and this mystical vision you had of heaven. True biblical spiritual sanctification comes through the means that God has given in his word and his spirit and his church. It's just not as impressive as saying you have a a word from God, a vision from God, or a, a visitation with an angel. But it's God's ordained means that he blesses and uses to sanctify his church. Now, here in 18 and 19, Paul powerfully states that the body of Christ, you'll see that body of Christ, should let no one disqualify them by a supposed mystical experience. Look what it says. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in details of detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, speaking of the church here corporately, the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. See, the growth comes from God and God's means of grace, not a mystical experience. That's what he's getting at here. The means of grace comes through our union with Christ. And it comes to edify and build up the church equally. The false teachers at Colossae didn't believe in an equality of of mystical experiences. They had to have the superior ones so they could make people follow them. They would call people to listen to them because they're the truly spiritual people in the church. Whereas, scripturally speaking, we're all equally spiritual in Christ, able to grow together in Christ. But here in Colossae, there was intimidation being exercised. That's what Paul's dealing with here as they they boast about their, their mystical experiences. And what he's saying there also, let me point this out in verse 18. He's saying, these guys are going to try to defraud you. If you have a New American Standard, that's actually what it's translated as. Let no one defraud you of the prize. And that prize is your intimate union with Christ. The fact that you have died with him, you've been raised with him to newness of life. These guys are saying, that's not enough. You need to listen to us. You need to see this mystical experience that we're having as something that you need to experience on some level, either listening to us and following our commands or finding a way to experience this yourself if you really want to be a strong Christian. And sadly, that still goes on today. I grew up in that. Mystical false teachers are still trying to do what they did here at Colossae today. Verse 18 says that 
They're trying to manipulate and intimidate by insisting. Notice that's very clear there. Insisting on how their obedience and their humility allowed them to become super spiritual leaders in the church, more enlightened than others. Now, I want to unpack for a minute what it means to, to be a mystic and what mysticism looks like so we can identify it when it comes into the church. It's probably the most frequent ism that comes into modern evangelicalism. Lifeway Christian bookstores would be shut down if they actually read this passage because they sell mysticism. It's important for us to recognize it. It is dangerous and deceptive. Mysticism can be defined as, number one, the pursuit of a deeper subjective experience with God. Sounds cool, doesn't it? I'm going to have a deep experience with God, man. You know, Scripture's cool, that's good, but wow, I mean, God came and, and did something, wow, just amazing last night while I was dreaming. He showed up, or I felt this goose bump, or I, I had this, this vision while I was out hunting, and I was in the woods, and I was all spiritually minded. You know, I hadn't read my Bible in a month, but I was out there in the woods, you know. Made me super in touch with God's creation. Mysticism is something that prides itself on this idea that there's something deeper than God's Word. I can have this deeper experience with God. It's completely subjective. It's hard for me to judge it. It's hard for you to judge it because I didn't experience it. Therefore, they say, well, you can't judge this because you haven't experienced it. Actually, God's word has already judged it. I don't have to. Either God's word is sufficient or it's not. If I need a mystical experience, God's word is insufficient. If, if there's, to me, if you understand this, there's nothing more spiritual than regeneration. Eternal union with God through Christ Jesus fellowship with God himself. I can enter into the throne room of grace and God is there to hear my cries in the time of need. There is nothing more spiritual than that. Some subjective experience can't add to this. Matter of fact, every cult that you know of has been basically established on mysticism. Jehovah's Witness, the Mormons, Islam, all of them based on Mystical experiences that are subjective in nature. Mysticism doesn't look for truth in God's word. It looks for truth internally. Mysticism clings to impressions, feelings, more than objective, external truth that's found in God's word. Now, not outright. A mystic would not say God's word's not important. It would just not be essential to have an experience with God, to have God's word in our hearts. I can have an experience with God outside of Scripture. It's deeper, it's broader, it's more, it's more intimate. Listen, we need to understand something very clearly about this. When you read Scripture, you're reading God-breathed inspiration. The Scriptures are literally breathed out by God. There is nothing better than Scripture. There is no more important thing for us to experience than the reading of Scripture where God is speaking directly to us. The truth, the object of truth of Scripture is to judge everything else, not our feelings. But mysticism obtains its authority not from Scripture. Mysticism obtains its authority from a light that comes within. Ooh, wow, I just... Thought. This is really amazing. I read this verse and I got thinking, that's not, what, that's not really what it means. Let me tell you what it means. God, God opened my eyes to this. Now, nobody in 2,000 years has seen this. I'm the first, but you should listen to me. My authority is I had this experience. If your experience doesn't line up with Scripture, chunk your experience. It's worthless. It's of no value. Listen, Mysticism is, number one, irrational. Number two, it's anti-intellectual. And consequently, that means it's anti-biblical. Here's why. Second or Second Timothy tells us this. Second Timothy tells us that to be biblical is to be thinking carefully, 
about what God's word says, to examine things carefully, to search the scriptures carefully, objectively. Second Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing, rightly handling the word of truth. That takes thinking, folks. Not an anti-intellectual, irrational, emotional, subjective feeling. Truth is to be known. Truth can be known. God has revealed all that we need here in his word. Matter of fact, look at 3.12 to 17. Paul goes further there in Timothy to say, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters, wizards, the word, will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue. That word continue is important to the rest of this. Continue is the word meno, M-E-N-O in the Greek. It means to abide and do not depart. Now, you can't do that with an emotional feeling or subjective feeling. He's talking about continuing in something that you have learned and what you have learned. That's objective and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. There it is. That's what he learned. That's what he was acquainted with. These sacred writings, he says, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Because, he says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Mysticism is anti-biblical. We could say there's a mystic part of our faith. There's a mystery to our faith. We understand that that's true and that's biblical. But when it comes to having an experience, it can be examined by Scripture, must be examined by Scripture. If it doesn't line up with Scripture, it must be rejected and certainly examined carefully. Here's why. Let me go a little further in Colossians. I will not get done with what I want to get done today, but I want to try to finish part two. Let's go back to Colossians. 2.18. I want to point out a couple of things here that's important to understanding this in its context. As we go back there, I want you to notice something in verse 18. Most of us here have ESV translations, and they don't help us much in this context. I wish they were translated a little differently here. Um, the ESV translation says that these men, in verse 18, try to disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Now, asceticism is typically the harsh treatment of the body, but that's not what the actual word here means in this verse. He does mean this later on and when he says the severity of the body there a little further on, I think verse 23. But here we need to understand something in verse 18 and, and even as it's used again in 23. Um, this word that's used here is actually the word self-abasement. Um, he's talking about outward shows of humility. It's false humility. It's like, look how humble I am kind of attitude. Self-abasement. Um, it's an outward display, the way it's used here. It's an outward display of self-abasement. And self-abasement is just really another way of saying false humility here. Or an outward display of a humility that's not truly from the heart, but rather intended to impress others. So when he says this in verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on how humble they are. <laughs> There's a problem when somebody does that, right? Uh, brother, I am so humble. You know, God has done all these things in my life because of how humble I am. Therefore, you ought to listen to me. Um, in reality, that's boasting, isn't it? That's what was happening here. See, these guys were insisting on how humble they were, insisting on how obedient they were. Therefore, their views and their regulations were to be legitimized by their humility, their experiences. These men were claiming, understand this, they were claiming that their great obedience to the regulations in 16 and 17 and their great humility is what made them able to receive visions and angelic revelations. He says in verse 18, these guys go on in detail about visions. I mean, what's up with that? Well, they're trying to justify 
their experience and their authority. They just make up the story. You guys have watched TBN. They do it all the time on there, right? I mean, you listen to some of this stuff, and it's like you're making it up as you go. It's ridiculous. But that's the tactic of a false teacher. He tries to overwhelm you with his experience, going on in detail about visions. They claim that their authority that they have to teach and to guide the church at Colossae is greater than Paul's because their super spiritual experiences qualify them. And they're simply just trying to intimidate their followers here. And we still have this happening today in many charismatic churches, in many charismatic movements, where people try to disqualify you and I simply because we believe that following God's word is sufficient to sanctify his people, as if following God's word is not a spiritual experience. Let me help you understand something. All Christians who are truly regenerated are charismatics, if you understand the term. We believe in the grace gifts of God, that our gifts and our equipping and our ability to serve God is through charis, it's through grace. Okay, It's through this gift that God's given us. But there are many within the charismatic movement, and I would qualify that differently than even just a charismatic church sometimes because you can have orthodox people in charismatic churches. But the movement itself simply tries to disqualify people by this idea that, that look, you, you don't have these experiences, therefore you're not truly as sanctified as we are, therefore you should listen to us. And that's an intimidating cultic tactic. Now, when I, when I think about this, this is my thought process. I, I was thinking about what Paul's writing here. Um, he says, these guys insist on these things. They go on and on in detail about their visions. I thought, what 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 a opposite attitude from the Apostle Paul and John the Apostle. It, it's interesting to me how freely modern mystics today offer up detailed stories about their humble trips to heaven and these angelic encounters that they glory in. I find it odd that they do that, considering how Paul writes about heaven and how John wrote about his encounter with angels in Revelation. Paul and John's stories sound completely different, opposite of the modern stories. Seems like somebody might be lying. Pretty sure it's not Paul or John. Um... Paul said about his being caught up into the third heaven that he could not tell what he saw. It couldn't be uttered. And and to make sure that he didn't utter it and to keep him humble, that passage in Corinthians says that God gave him a thorn in the flesh so he wouldn't go around selling his story at Lifeway profiting from his supposed vision. Now, his was true. Yet God says, you're not going to profit from this. You're not going to demean others who haven't experienced this. You're simply going to know that this experience was from me as a revelation of who I am and what I'm doing. But it's not for you to boast in. It's not for you to glorify yourself in, unlike many within modern evangelicalism today. Paul points out, Who's lying here in Colossians 2.18? He points out the liars when he declares that these men are actually, you see it there in verse 18, these men and their visions are actually puffed up without reason, without cause, by their sensuous mind. Simply saying they're puffed up, they're arrogant, they're proud because of their fleshly thinking. Now here's the evidence of their fleshly thinking. They worship angels. Could you not be more fleshly than that? You're turning away from the one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, to go to different mediators as if that makes you more spiritual. You're worshiping, adoring, glorifying is what this means here. The word worship is actually to worship and adore someone and something. You're doing that. Well, that testifies to your fleshly thinking, your earthly thinking. Now, here's what was happening. I'm going to end here in just a moment, but just understand this. These, these men were pretending to be humble by boasting. <laughs> Sounds ironic, doesn't it? Here's what their boast was. They were boasting 
that they, they, they can't go to God directly. Who am I to go to God directly? I will rather bow my head in humility and I'll go to these angelic messengers to receive my teaching. That's self-abasement. That's false humility. Their false humility here gives evidence that they denied the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, who is the one mediator between God and man. These false teachers used their mystical experiences as a tool to intimidate the followers that were here. But Scripture tells us that these types of mystical teachers and experiences are fleshly. They're fleshly because they trust in their own abilities, their own subjective experiences, and not in Christ. And so Paul's wanting us not to be intimidated when people are puffed up and boast about these great experiences they have. Those experiences that they cling to more than they cling to Christ. He says these guys are cut off. They're not even part of Christ. They're worshiping angels rather than Jesus. Don't let these guys disqualify you. Don't let these guys judge you as spiritually weak because you simply trust in Jesus. How ridiculous is that? They say you have to do this to prop up Jesus and do that to prop up Jesus. You're saying, I trust in Christ alone to save and sanctify me. We need this reminder. I think, I think we all need this reminder because sometimes if you're hanging around some friends who, who may be into something like this, you may feel a little intimidated. You may feel disqualified or less spiritual than they are because they, they claim to have all these wow experiences. I was in the grocery store and I just got this feeling all over me and, and I just turned around and there's a guy and I just began to share the gospel with him. It was like God showed up. Well, listen, that's a great thing that you did. But you didn't need the goosebump feelings to do it. You were already commanded to do this. Go and make disciples. Why are you boasting in this? But I want you to understand something. God has given us a means of grace to strengthen our biblical sanctification. We need no other props. We need no other mystical experiences or rituals or rules to make us biblically sanctified people. God has given us what we need in his word. Next week, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the means of grace that God's given to make us biblically sanctified people for his glory and for our good. Let's pray as we prepare for that next week. Heavenly Father, today we thank you for this means of grace that you've given us. This truth that protects us from the intimidation of others who try to disqualify us, try to pass judgment on us because we aren't meeting their standards. Lord, we know that our judgment has already been passed. We have been found guiltless in Christ who became sin for us, died our death upon a cross and credited us with his righteousness so that we are saved by your free and merited favor by trusting in what Christ did alone, not what we do and not what we can add to our salvation. And if you've done that for us, then we can trust that you have given us the means of grace that we need to walk in sanctification through your spirit, your word, and your church. And next week, I pray, God, that we would be able to see that. And glory in the cross, glory in your grace, glory in your gifts that are in the church so that we would not be led astray or discouraged, or intimidated by those who come to us with all these experiences and testimonies. We have the greatest testimony that we need, which is Christ. His testimony is ours. His life has been given to us so that we could walk in freedom, walk in such a way that we could pursue your will from the heart, not just externally God that is the Christian's desire the true desire is to magnify Jesus not ourselves these other things tend to magnify our abilities cause us to boast in our flesh but we want to magnify Jesus God we pray that we would decrease 
as we look to Christ and rejoice over His resurrected power that's now ours by faith. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified today. I pray you have been glorified today in the gathering of your church and in the preaching of your word. I pray you would continue to magnify your greatness through this body here in Christ's name.